Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1266. Interview number five with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 14th of the year 2022. Before I introduce our guest, let me remind you I'm doing uh, a Patreon site with three one-hour talks per week plus periodic Zoom Q&A sessions. These will be featuring researchers and authors from time to time, including the guest who is on deck, and that is Jim Diagenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, that was the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews we did in 2018 and 2019, and most recently, both the screenplay for and the book about JFK Revisited, that documentary having been produced or directed by Oliver Stone. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Okay, thank you so much, Dave. All righty. Now, let's pick up where we were talking, what we were talking about last week. We really did not get a chance to complete our discussion about the Congo and what was going on there. So let's go back and let's recap what we spoke about last week. Uh, the Congo. What was it in the late 1950s and 1960s? Who was Patrice Lumumba? And how did JFK's understanding of the nationalist striving for independence, uh, something that was cast into the Cold War meat grinder when the Western allies reneged on their promise to grant independence? the colonial territories that had been conquered by the Axis, uh, threw us in on uh, what JFK was thinking in the late 50s, what happened uh, between his election and inauguration, and Eisenhower's uh, views on this as well. All right. I've always believed, that since about the 90s, that this was both a very, very important subject and also a very much overlooked subject. Because, number one, it tells us a lot about Kennedy's foreign policy views and how they differed with the people who came before him, namely Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles, and Alan Dulles. Plus... This was really very important to Africa. Even Jonathan Quitney, the late Jonathan Quitney, the Wall Street Journal writer, who wasn't really a big fan of Kennedy, all right, he wrote in his book, Endless Enemies, that this was such an important event because for the first time you had a sub-Saharan African country with a newly elected democratic leader under a constitutional government. And yet, and again, see, this is the kind of stuff we're supposed to be for, right? We're supposed to be for democracy. We're supposed to be for constitutions. We're supposed to be for the votes of the people. But yet, America was determined 
to stifle this thing in the crib, right? And they did. Now, they weren't the only ones doing it, but they were a major part of overturning the will of the people and in being part of the murder of Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba was a very eloquent, very articulate revolutionary leader, okay? And he had won the election, which I believe was in June of 1960, all right? And he wanted the natural resources of Congo to be available and marketable by the people of Congo. In other words, he wanted the profits from those resources to go to the people of Congo, right? And this is, of course, what made him revolutionary because the idea of European colonialism was very much embedded in Africa, you know, all the way until the early 1960s, right? And so Kennedy had a completely different view of this than Eisenhower did, all right? And he sent Avril Harriman to meet with Lumumba. And Lumumba actually sent Kennedy a letter. And this, of course, is prior to the election where he defeated Richard Nixon, all right? And Kennedy, after being briefed by Harriman that Lumumba was a good guy, and receiving the letter by Lumumba that urged him to cooperate with Dag Hammarskjöld, all right, he was more or less all for Lumumba becoming the president of the Congo. And then, of course, what happened is that Eisenhower and Alan Dulles were not in favor of, let's put an understatement, of Lumumba being the president of the Congo. And so Eisenhower went ahead and ordered Alan Dulles to go ahead and start an assassination plot against Lumumba. And there were, I I believe, four or five of these that were hatched by the CIA, right? And this is the first time we hear about people like Q.J. Wynn and W.I. Rogue, who were paid hired assassins you know, on the CIA payroll, okay? And there were also methods used by Mr. Gottlieb to go ahead and try and poison Lumumba, all right? And these plots pick up urgency around the end of the year because Lumumba is still there and Kennedy's about to take office, all right? And so what happens is the CIA switches strategy, And they decide the best way to get rid of Lumumba is to allow him to escape his house arrest and then cut off all bridges, highways, etc. and give time for the Belgians to go ahead and track him down and then deliver him into the hands of his dreaded enemies in Katanga, the secession state that Lumumba was opposed to, all right? And that is what happened. That's what happened, all right? And so 
Lumumba is placed before a firing squad on, I believe, January the 17th, okay, 1961. And Kennedy, if you can believe this, Kennedy takes office on the 20th, three days later. He doesn't hear about Lumumba passing until February the 17th. At that time, Dag Hammarskjöld talked to Adlai Stevenson, the U.S. representative at the U.N., and told him that he had it on reliable sources that Lumumba had been killed. All right? And he said, do you want me to tell Kennedy or do you want do you want to tell him yourself? And so Stevenson said, I'll tell him myself. And there's a very famous picture of Kennedy getting the news that Lumumba had been killed at the precise moment that Jock Lowe is taking publicity pictures with Kennedy and his kids in the Oval Office. The phone rings. Stevenson tells him the news. And Kennedy's hand goes to his forehead and his expression drops and he grimaces in almost physical pain. Okay. When he gets the news that Lumumba is dead. And I've always said, always that if you want to see the difference between what came before Kennedy and what came after Kennedy, just take a look at that picture. Because we know what happened before Eisenhower ordered Lumumba's assassination. He was probably clapping his hands. All right. And we know what happened after Johnson completely reversed Kennedy's policy in Congo. All right. Uh, Jim, before we get to what LBJ did after JFK was killed, uh, a point that I want to underscore. Uh, Lumumba was democratically elected, and as I recall, he asked Eisenhower for uh, national security slash military assistance and was turned down. Then he asked for assistance from the Soviet Union, as I recall. And at that point, this by way of underscoring JFK's understanding of the meaning and the power of national of uh, national liberation movements, anti-colonial, anti-imperial movements, which were cast, as I mentioned, into the Cold War meat grinder. Uh, and then, as I recall, it was when Lumumba sought assistance from the Soviet Union after having sought assistance from the U.S. and having been turned down. At that point, he was painted red in the minds of Eisenhower, Alan Dulles, et cetera. Right, because what had happened is that Belgium had reinvaded Congo, okay? And so Lumumba was looking for aid to expel the Belgians, and he didn't care where it came from, all right? And so what happened, of course, is once the word got out in Washington that he had asked Moscow for some help and that Moscow had actually given him some help, that is what more or less 
determined in the eyes of the CIA, okay, and the White House that Lumumba was a communist, which he was not, all right? And so what happened is that Devlin, the CIA station chief, now began to put out these classic Cold War memos to Washington that Congo is undergoing a tremendous, momentous turn like Castro did in Cuba and becoming a Soviet puppet, etc. You know, they're really kind of outrageous when you read them. But that's what, you know, that's what these guys were there for. And, of course, unfortunately, the people in Washington who were not there uh, took these things seriously. All right. Now, what happens then is that when Kennedy, and by the way, I should I should add this. Before Kennedy even knew that Lumumba was dead, he had already changed Eisenhower's policy in Congo. Okay. Um, Eisenhower had decided to sit it out and not back Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the UN, whereas Kennedy, his new policy, his task force, okay, they were going to go ahead and follow Dag Hammarskjöld's lead, whatever it might be. And this is what Lumumba had written Kennedy, that that's what he wanted him to do. All right. He had always asked also for all prisoners to be released, which meant Lumumba, who was under house arrest, okay, because the CIA uh, had gotten there to be a split between the commanding general Mobutu and Lumumba, all right? Okay, and Mobutu and Kasavu had decided to try and get rid of Lumumba, all right? And this is how he ended up under house arrest. And so uh, Kennedy... Interrupting very briefly, uh, one of the expert slash authors who is featured in Destiny, or not Destiny, uh, JFK Revisited, is David Talbot, uh, author of, among other titles, uh, The Devil's Chessboard about Alan Dulles. And one of the points that he makes is that it was believed by Alan Dulles and the CIA and the Eisenhower camp that Kennedy would indeed do exactly what you just uh, spoke of, namely reversing that policy. And there was a an urgency time-wise on the dispatching of Lumumba before JFK could implement that policy. That's correct. That's that. That's correct. That the CIA knew that this is what Kennedy was going to do, and this is what added urgency uh, to them getting rid of Patrice Lumumba. Now, I should hasten to add here that, and to show you really how momentous this event was, you know, it's bad enough they got rid of Lumumba. But then around eight or nine months later, they got rid of Hammerskjold. Okay. Uh, if you've ever seen that film, Cold Case Hammerskjold, or 
the read Susan Williams book, what happened to Hammerschild, you will see that this whole mythology about his plane being crashed, okay, in the middle of September, while he's on a peacemaking mission in that area, this is, I believe today, utterly false. Okay, Dag Hammerskjöld was assassinated. All right, his plane was sabotaged. All right, this is how important, and this is why I think I'm so discouraged that this issue has been relatively ignored, and I'm glad Oliver put it into our film. All right, and as anybody who has studied what happened that night? Um, it's very. There's two things that really stick out, okay, and more or less uh, prove the case. Number one, that Hammerskjöld's body, compared to the other people's, is not charred and burned. I believe there is something like 17 people killed in that plane crash the Albertina, okay? But if you see the pictures of Dag Hammerskjöld, okay, his body is not charred and burned. Secondly, and you can see this, I think we showed this in one of our pictures, there's a playing card in his shirt collar and one of the witnesses who who were at the scene of the crime said that it was the ace of spades. Now, Unless Dag Hammerskjold was playing cards at the time the plane went down, and then miraculously, when it crashed, that card somehow twisted around, went underneath his chin, between his neck and his shirt collar, and inserted behind his tie. I don't think that was an accident. All right? There is a book called Kill Anything That Moves by Nick Terse. It, that was the order given by Captain Medina to his forces as they were preparing to move into My Lai, and they precipitated the famous uh, My Lai Massacre. And he talks about the routine atrocity in Vietnam, and one of the things that they often did was to insert the ace of spades as a death card, uh, mm-hmm. or put it onto the corpse of someone who had been dispatched. So it is a gesture, if we could call it that, that has a rhetorical history. Uh, very quickly, Jim, uh, recapping a little bit of the history that led up to Hammerschel's uh, mission to Africa. There was a secessionist movement for the mineral resource-rich Katanga province, led, as I recall, by Moshe Chombe. And I believe Kennedy successfully enlisted the United Nations forces to put down that rebellion. And that was the uh, context in which Bob Hammerschel uh, was in the Congo at that time, was it not? Actually, it was Hammerschel who led that movement under request by Lumumba. Kennedy then agreed to go along with it. Okay. The event, the event that I believe 
galvanized Kennedy was when he got the telex from Edmund Gullion, who was the ambassador in Congo. Okay. And he said, whatever you might, now these are not verbatim. These are words of the effect. Whatever you might be hearing about this being an accident, this was not an accident. This was an assassination. Okay. And I believe that when Kennedy got that telex from Edmund Gullion out of Congo, I believe that that's what really turned him into, okay, because he had nothing but admiration for Dag Hammarskjöld. All right. And I think I said this before, but it's worth saying again. When he heard about Hammarskjöld's assassination, he called in one of the Swedish diplomats out of the embassy and said words to the effect that Dag Hammarskjöld was the greatest statesman of the 20th century. He could never even hope to begin to match what Hammarskjöld had done. And if you study Hammarskjöld's career, I don't know how many people have. He really was a great statesman. You know, he believed that the United Nations was designed to give voice to the powerless, all right? That this was the one forum in the world, okay, where countries entering from the third world could actually debate things with the major powers. And this is what, this is why he responded to Lumumba's request, all right? So after Hammerskjöld is, is, is assassinated. Kennedy steps into the breach. He went to the United Nations not once, but twice in order to keep them involved until the Katanga secession was broken. All right. And then he advised Stevenson to vote for Operation Grand Slam, which is one of the very, if not the first, one of the very first United Nations military missions that was, I think, in December of 1962. That was meant to crush the Katanga secession, which it did. All right. And Kennedy was very much gratified by that. All right. And, and, and he was very proud of that. And he actually said that in a memo to his staff. You know, we should really savor this moment. We should all be proud of what we have done here. Okay. I mean, can you imagine this? Here's a guy, <laughs> you know, standing up for the crushing of a European colonial power, okay, and trying to give, you know, the republic over to the people who live there, the colonized people. And he's actually sending out a memo, okay, saying that, good, we finally accomplished something great. This would sort of be like uh, Lyndon Johnson praising the Viet Cong. Okay, you know, in, in Vietnam. But that's what Kennedy actually did. You know. Well, very quickly, Jim, Edmund Gullion was the same Edmund Gullion who had mentored JFK when he traveled to Indochina in the early 1950s. Right. Right. Back in 1951, Kennedy made a point to meet with two people, Seymour Topping, a journalist, and Edmund Gillian, a diplomat. And it was these two guys who told him that France is not going to win this colonial war. See, that's why, that's why he appointed him the ambassador of Congo. All right. 
because he understood what Golan would be standing for. Uh, and another thing that is worth noting, in, uh, in the, by the way, in the book JFK Revisited, there are transcripts both of the two-hour documentary and an expanded four-hour documentary. Plus, there are interviews with uh, the experts who are featured in the documentary, including the aforementioned David Talbot. And there is discussion of some of the research on the killing of Dog Hammarskjöld that has come to light since. Uh, one of the things, apparently it was, it actually the operation had a code name, Operation Celeste, and there was also a white supremacist organization uh, with the acronym SAMIR, S-A-M-I-R, all in capitals, that were involved in the assassination. Are you in the position, Jim, to expand on that for us? Yeah, see, one of the things that Gullion suspected, okay, from the evidence I just advanced, okay, is that Hammerskald was not killed when the plane crashed, that he suspected that they had sent in a team afterwards to make sure that Hammerskald was killed, all right? And this is what he really believed happened. Now, other people have picked up on this, and there were documents released, if you recall, after South Africa became free. All right. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Committee run, I believe, by Desmond Tutu. All right. And he, his idea was to get all out all the, uh, the horrible things that the apartheid regime had done. Within one set of these documents, there was a mention of as you said, something called Operation Celeste. And this was, it says it quite literally in there, this was a plot to kill Hammerskjold, in which Alan Dulles's name is actually mentioned. Okay, and I think one of the things that is, is, in, the, is in the notes, it says, Alan would like to see this one taken care of more cleanly than Lumumba. All right. And so the suspicion, of course, is that since there was a mention of this terrorist group called Samir in the memos, that there was a contract set out, okay, for them to go ahead and infiltrate the airport okay, where it was taking off from, and then make sure that there were no survivors after the plane crashed, okay? And we we mentioned this in a long version of the film, okay? Um, and I'm, 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 I'm really glad Oliver did that because I don't think... There's two things I'm very proud of as part of the foreign policy aspects of the film. That we really went in, in the long version, we really went into the murder of Hammerskjold. And secondly, what we did with Indonesia. Okay, because I don't think, I, I, I can't think of any, I can't think of another American film 
documentary or features that ever did that. Okay. And so I'm really glad Oliver did this. I'm really glad that we exposed a lot of people to those two aspects. Well, Jim, very quickly, a, an aspect of this that I think is important. I have a question about it. And, uh, if, if the timing that you mentioned and, and my understanding of it is accurate, I think it reflects in a really profound way on JFK's killing and even the composition of the Warren Commission itself. Now, uh, Hummershold was killed in 1962, correct? No, he was killed in September of 1961. Oh, okay. All righty. So <clears throat> Alan Bellis then would still have been in the CIA or? Yes. Yes. Okay, Cause okay. he doesn't leave, he doesn't leave till November. Okay, good. So he was, that, that, that clears up my confusion. All righty. So he was still technically as the, at the head of CIA when this, uh, plotting was going on. Yeah, that, that's why I think his name is in those documents. Okay, good. All right. But that was, that was the, uh, uh, failure of my understanding under the circumstances. Uh, now we've seen what happened with, uh, Patrice Lumumba. And again, he, he turned to the U.S. for military aid against the, uh, Belgian attempt at reconquering the Congo. Eisenhower rebuffed him. He then turned to the Soviets for aid, and that basically doomed him. Uh, there was also the secessionist movement in mineral-rich Katanga province, led by Moshe Chombe. And then, of course, in November of 1963, JFK is killed. Bob has been assassinated as well. Uh, what did LBJ do with regard to Congo policy? This is really, when you look at this, it's really a momentous reversal of policy. And it's pretty dramatic, all right? Clearly, Johnson was not going to go ahead and back Srila Dula, who was the guy who was picked to replace Lumumba, even though, even though, and this is very important, even though the Katanga secession had been defeated. All right. And so Johnson more or less allies himself with the CIA. And what happened after this was something called the Simba Rebellion. Okay. Which was a kind of combination of Native Africans plus um, the last of Lumumba's followers, all right? And the CIA did everything they could to label this communist-inspired, when in fact it was not at all communist-inspired. Che Guevara actually went over there, and he, no, this is not communist-inspired at all. I really don't know what these people are about. But then what they did is they tried to say that they found these documents from Beijing, okay? And this is, of course, all that Johnson needed. And so what happens is that he unleashes 
the CIA special forces, okay, into Congo. And this included, if you can believe it, it's true, because I interviewed one of these guys. He included Cuban exiles and CIA pilots. And the guy who went over there, a CIA agent who specialized in aerial missions, he told me, he goes, Jim, you wouldn't have believed it. We took over the embassy. And I think this is why Bellingham left, because he resigned his position in 1964. Okay. He realized what had happened. And what happens, of course, is that using the excuse of this Simba rebellion, all right, the CIA essentially wipes out everything that Kennedy had done. Okay. Everything he had done for the last three years. All right. And they now, after they get rid of both Adula, who resigned, Gullion, who resigned, and they wipe out the Simba Rebellion. And by the way, they use jet planes in this, if you can imagine that. They use jet planes against people with swords and spears. All right. And once that happens, they set up Joseph Mobutu to be essentially the strongman, whatever you want to call him, the fascist dictator. You know, they completely reversed going from, you know, Lumumba, the democratically elected president, to a fascist dictator. And, 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 and this guy, Joseph Mobutu, reigns for 30 years. He changed the name of Congo to Zaire. All right. And he becomes, if not the richest man in Africa, certainly one of the most wealthy men in Africa. His f- personal fortune, once he met his downfall, okay, was in the literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. It was really kind of sickening because Lumumba wanted all that money to go to the people in Congo to build roads, to build streets, you know, to build homes, to build schools, to build hospitals, to get Congo, okay, into being, you know, a civilized and, and, and a, a country that could support its own population. Now today, of course, we all know if you just look at any of these third world barometers, Congo is one, and I, we put this in the film, Congo is one of the most poverty stricken countries in the third world. About 78% of its people live in poverty and poverty. Now, the, what's amazing about this, of course, is that if you take a look at the raw materials that Congo has, all right, it should be one of the richest countries in Africa, if not the richest country in Africa. But what happened afterwards between the CIA and Johnson, that ended up reversing the ideals that Hammerskald, Kennedy, and Lumumba had. And it, it took three assassinations. It, it, this is amazing. It took three assassinations to do this. You know, one of Lumumba, one of Hammerskald, and one of Kennedy. And if you ask me, they were all implemented by the CIA. Uh, Jim, one of the things that's interesting, before we get to uh, the subject of Indonesia, uh, when LBJ succeeded JFK, 
as president following what frankly was a coup d'etat. Uh, it is as though LBJ went cuckoo, and that is spelled C-O-U-P, comma, C-O-U-P. We have spoken about the Congo. We're going to talk about Indonesia and epic bloodletting. And uh, your colleague Lisa Peace was quoted in the film and in the book uh, about uh, the vision that JFK had and was remarked on by President Sukarno of Indonesia that he understood that non-aligned nations in the developing world uh, didn't want to be either communist or associated with the West. But uh, no sooner does LBJ become president in 64, the government of Brazil is overthrown in a CIA coup. Then LBJ sends troops into the Dominican Republic in 65 to shore up uh, Mr. Balaguer, who'd been the top aide to the dictator Trujillo. And then in 1967, Greece gets it. So mm-hmm. uh, simply what is spoken about in the film and in the book is only part of what took place. I know some people have found fault with Oliver Stone and all yourself because you didn't talk about this or you didn't talk about that. There is only so much time. There is only so much room in a book that is going to be published by a commercial publisher. So uh, the fact that certain things may not be discussed, uh, I, I don't think should be seen as an indictment. Uh, one of the things that gets terrific coverage in the film and in the book, and that you and your aforementioned colleague Lisa Peace uh, do a yeoman-like piece of work with regard to, and that is Indonesia. If you would, Jim, fill us in on the pre-JFK presidency background of Sukarno, uh, the emergence of Indonesia from the colonial state they had been under the uh, Netherlands, and what JFK's stance was, what Eisenhower did, and then what took place after JFK himself was eliminated. Ackerman Sukarno was one of the founders of the country of Indonesia after the Japanese defeat in 1945, all right? And he was its first president. And he he was not a communist, but he allowed most of the peasants in Indonesia to organize into a communist party called the PKI. You know, which had many, many, I think, I'm pretty sure, although I'm not positive, it might have been the largest communist party out of, uh, out of Moscow and Beijing next to those two countries. All right. I think there was something like five million members. All right. And Sukarno actually when always said, look, these people are not really communists. They're people who are poverty stricken and nationalists who want a voice, okay, in the way their government is being run. That's really all they want. And I don't take them seriously as, as being somehow revolutionaries. Well, evidently Alan Dulles and his brother Foster Dulles did take them seriously. So in ninth, which is no big surprise, of course. All right. So in 
1958, the CIA made an attempt to overthrow Sukarno, right? And this was, I believe, I believe I'm correct about this, before the Bay of Pigs failure, this was the largest CIA um, defeat since the beginning of the agency. All right. The, it was a huge operation. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of people involved. All right. Um, they sent in ships. They sent in undercover operatives, et cetera, to organize the opposition. But what happened is when a CIA pilot, Pope, okay, his last name was Pope, when he was shot down, he had his CIA identity cards on him. And Sukarno used that to show that this was not, this was not a natural indigenous uprising. Washington is behind this thing. They're trying to overthrow us, which something he had always warned about. All right. And so this rallied the populace and the military to his side. And the coup attempt was defeated. All right. Now, in 1961, I believe, Sukarno was set to visit the United States. And it wasn't, the, the letters of exchange were not very cordial or friendly. And so Kennedy was curious as to why this was so. So he asked Alan Dulles for a report on what had happened in 1958. If you can believe it, Dulles gave him a redacted report. But there was enough in it that Kennedy explained, ex- exclaimed to one of the people in the Oval Office after he was done reading it, he said, no wonder Sukarno doesn't like us. We tried to overthrow his government. <laughs> so, so Kennedy was determined to strike out on a new path with Sukarno. And so one of the things he agreed to do was he would arrange for his brother to give West Erion or West New Guinea, whatever you want to call it. I think it's called Papua today. All right. To Indonesia, which is something that Sukarno really wanted to do. He thought that that should be part of his country of Indonesia. So Kennedy sent his brother to New York along with Ellsworth Bunker and the Dutch who had colonized Congo, excuse me, Indonesia, were very surprised at how strong the United States pressed the issue. And so Sakarna was very happy with this, and he wanted Kennedy to visit Indonesia in a massive state visit in 1964 during the election year, which Kennedy had agreed to do. All right. And by the way, to show you the kind of person John F. Kennedy was, he was so determined that Indonesia would be able to work its way out of poverty that he sent a trade representative over there, I believe from Tufts University, which is the college where 
Kennedy decided that he was going to help formulate a lot of his economic policy for overseas countries. And he gave the guy instructions. He said, look, as Sukarno begins to nationalize these industries, I want you to negotiate, start negotiating at 60-40, okay, in Sukarno's favor. The most I want you to drop down to is 50-50. Can you imagine that? I mean, really, can you imagine the way David Rockefeller felt about that? Okay. So. You know, if I were to give you, since this is going to be broadcast on the radio, if I were to give you a candid opinion, I would have to reach into the foulest backwaters of my vocabulary. And that's a good <laughs> work uh, with the FCC. Uh, very quickly, Jim, you know, going back to the Indonesian Communist Party, there is a good portrayal of that in a book called The Jakarta Method by James Devins. And he points out that not only was the Indonesian Communist Party the largest outside of uh, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, but it was democratic with a small d in orientation. They believed in the integrity of the electoral process, and uh, it was not uh, totalitarian in any way, nor, and this is a big one today, it wasn't atheist by any means. In fact, in Indonesia, which is a majority Muslim country, the very sizable Buddhist and Hindu minorities uh, gravitated toward the PKI because they could not only retain their faith and practice it, but uh, it was a vehicle where other like-minded people were congregating. So I think that that's a point that we ought to make in terms yes. of understanding yes. uh, JFK's. And again, that, that, the reason I've read that quote from page 352 of the book by Lisa Pease, uh, it is fundamental to understanding, I think, the vision that JFK was attempting to implement and the vision that was 180 degrees at variance with the status quo of American power structure, and it led directly to Kennedy's execution. Uh, right, that, and because what happens is that after Kennedy is killed, what we saw happen in Congo, the same thing happens in Indonesia. And Roger Hillsman, who was the undersecretary for the Far East, writes about this in his book, To Move a Nation. He said that when Kennedy was killed, there was a document on his desk that allowed for the extension of aid to Indonesia. And I think it was the first installment for, I think it was for 11 million, leading up to something like 300 million. And everybody knew, Hillsman writes, Everybody knew that when Kennedy was getting back from Dallas, he was going to sign that. Well, he said the first signal to him that Johnson was breaking with American foreign policy as established by JFK is that he didn't sign it. And and he said everybody was shocked that he didn't sign it. Okay. And that, of course, is just the beginning of him ramping up covert operations an animus against Sukarno, which culminates, of course, with what some commentators have said is the most brilliant CIA overthrow in history in 1965. 
okay, in Jakarta, where nobody really knows. I'm sure you have your own guess. But anywhere between 500,000 and 750,000 people were killed, mostly members of the PKI. They were determined Suharto, who was secretly involved in this, okay, was determined to exterminate the PKI. And very, very quickly in the, the aforementioned book, The Jakarta Method, uh, Bevins puts the death toll at a million, as do many right wing advocates of that kind of thing. I have seen estimates as high as three million dead. So okay. this, we're talking about an enormous slaughter here, not, not just. Right. And it uh, went on. It went on month after month after month after month. We had Bradley Simpson who's probably the foremost scholar on Indonesia in the United States. And Oliver asked him, he said, in all the documents you've read, which he said were 50,000 pages, okay, extending over to October of 1966, have you ever seen anything where the United States said that is enough? And he said, no, there's not one. Can you imagine this? I mean, it's really mind-boggling. Not one person in the State Department or the White House ever said, that's enough. And by the way, they knew exactly what was happening because Brad Simpson said, we gave them telecommunications equipment. See, the old adage had been, we only sent them lists of people to kill. That's not true. We sent them telecommunications equipment to monitor what was happening there in real time, along with money, along with medicine, along with small arms. So this whole thing that was begun by the Washington Post, that all we did was send lists of suspected PKI members, that's bullshit. The United States Uh, is much more involved in that. We'll uh, we'll move this, uh, this, we'll just have to edit out that one exclusion. No sweating. I mean, I I, I know, you know, uh, there is a point at which not using four-letter words almost becomes uh, a form of line. But, you know, in, in relation to the, the coup there, not only the numbers, but in, in the aforementioned book, The Jakarta Method, uh, James Bevins talks about the areas in Bali today where some of the worst slaughter took place. And even the machetes that were used for the executions are believed to have been imported because the people there use a different kind of knife in their farm work and clearing uh, wilderness. But the areas that were, uh, in, you know, where the executions took place, now they have uh, pricing resorts where people from Australia, the U.S., all, and, and including so-called progressives go to uh, do anything from surf to drink to practice, quote, mindfulness, unquote. But there's this little problem, Jim. Uh, as storms come, as the tides shift, these skeletons and, and, and severed skulls keep surfacing on the sands where these people are trying to be mindful or mm-hmm. sip their uh, cocktails. And uh, periodically, the local Hindu priest has to give the uh, appropriate rights to these people. There is a tremendous contrast between the before and the after and the the grimness of the slaughter uh contrasts very sharply with the uh woke unquote 
cloud uh, that that inhabits these. Well, not, I shouldn't say inhabits, but uh, uh, patronizes these resorts. Uh, yeah, so th- this was an enormous slaughter, and uh, you know one of the things that I think is important to underscore, and that is what happened with regard to American corporate interests in Indonesia after the coup. And in particular, uh, there is a name that winds through the anti-Castro efforts that uh, were centered in, among other places, New Orleans, and we'll get to that when we discuss Cuba, and also in Indonesia as well, and that is the name Freeport. Uh, this is asking a lot, but I wonder if you would uh, fill us in briefly on Freeport Sulphur, how Clay Shaw and David Ferry fit into that. Maybe perhaps we can we'll talk more about Clay Shaw. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to have to extend this because it's, this is not a short story. Okay. Uh, Freeport Sulphur began in the New Orleans area and it, it was what it said it was. It was essentially a sulfur mining company, um, led by Jock Whitney, the very rich New York City guy who owned the New York Herald Tribune. Well, Freeport Sulfur was one of the first countries, excuse me, companies that was thrown out of Cuba. All right. And so there was information that Jim Garrison had that um, Clay Shaw and David Ferry had taken a helicopter, fl- not a, a, a plane flight to Canada in order to try and find a different way to go ahead and uh, refine the sulfur that was already on hand, that they already had in the Brathwaite um, uh, mine in, in Louisiana. All right. And this was one of the most fascinating things, I believe, that Garrison ever had because it connected Shaw and Ferry to another level, okay, a whole nother level of the power elite, which I don't think anybody had ever done before the way that Jim Garrison did at that time, all right? And so what happens then is that Freeport now begins to concentrate they figure they can't get back into cuba so now they begin to concentrate on indonesia okay and this is an incredible story about how they found out about the grassberg and the Erzberg, which were two of the most incredible extravagant locations of gold copper and well they probably were the two greatest deposits of gold silver and copper in the entire world all right but freeport found out about these things and when the kennedys decided to give over papua uh, to indonesia they were full well aware that if we get rid of sakarno we can go into these two mines okay and that's exactly what happened after Sukarno was overthrown and Suharto was installed. The very first contract he signed was with Freeport. 
Wow. And, and of course, that is a company that, that uh, will uh, cement uh, part of the relationship between David Ferry and Clay Shaw, two of the people that uh, Jim Garrison was investigating in New Orleans and whom you cover at length in Destiny Betrayed. Yes. Um, Jim, we're almost out of time, and I have to apologize. Maybe I, I, I talk a little bit too much. Although, you know, it's hard when talking about the subject to keep one's uh, auditory clipped past a point. But in our next interview, we'll, we'll pick up with uh, Mr. Shaw, Ferry, what Jim Garrison found, Freeport Sulphur, and uh, recap what they did in Indonesia. But we're almost out of time in this interview. I wonder if you would tell us several things. One, how people can uh, get the documentary, how they can get the book, and also tell us about Black Ops Radio. All right. Uh, first of all, I'm the editor of a website called kennedysandking.com which I recommend to everybody. I think it's one of the very best websites there are in the assassination of the 60s. All right, I'm a regular on Black Op Radio out of Vancouver with Leno Sanic. And you can get the book in any number of places. And I, re- I really think anybody listening would be interested in the book because it has both screenplays, plus it has a whole section of the interviews that we did, about 30 of them, which did not get on the screen. Okay, you can get it from Abbey Books, Barnes & Noble, or Amazon. And the DVD, which contains, I believe, three discs, the short version, the long version, and the commentary. If you can believe it, I just checked this again. After two and a half months, it's number nine in the Amazon documentary list. I, I was shocked. This thing has been in the top ten for the last two and a half months, which is amazing, I believe. I don't think any JFK documentary has ever had that kind of longevity. And so, again, there is a book that people can read. Yes. There yes. is a package of uh, DVDs in the documentary. By the way, they're both in regular DVD and also Blu-ray. And uh, people can also and should visit the KennedysandKing.com website. And also, uh, Leno Sanic and, uh, Black Ops Radio out of Vancouver, Canada. And also in some of the aforementioned Zoom Q&A Patreon sessions that I'm doing, uh, we'll be featuring Jim and other researchers and authors, uh, in, uh, weeks to come. Uh, so let's wrap things up at this point, Jim. I think this is a good, uh, well, we're almost out of time. But we have been visiting with Jindia Jamiel, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, which was the total point of 25 one-hour programs that we did back in 2018 and 2019, and also the screenplay writer for Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited and the editor-slash-author of the book itself. For Jindia Jamiel... This is Dave Emery saying this has been for the record program number 1266, interview number five with Jim Diavino about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 14th of the H22. For Jim Diavino, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.